Welcome to this episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. As pastors, elders, and ministers, we believe the enemy is after the hearts and minds of God's people, and we're stepping into the fray. This week, the guys get together to discuss the present cultural conflict over human identity. Is our identity a product of our appetites, our anatomy, or something else? So you're invited to listen in as we discuss what the identity conflict is all about, what the Bible offers as an alternative, and how Christians should think about the growing pressure to affirm current ideas about human identity that are distinctly at odds with a Christian point of view. Welcome to the conversation. We're back today in the Lake Ridge Secret Sanctum, or as some people call it, the old choir loft. Not that there's anything particularly lofty about this place, but uh, anyway, we want to spend some time on the conversation today that's happening in our culture related to human identity and whether our faith has anything at all to say about how we should think about identity and how we should engage that discussion with the broader culture. Here today, we again have Kyle Wisdom, Youth Director at Lake Ridge Bible Church, Van Minter, one of our two lead pastors at Lake Ridge, Ben Lowry, the other lead pastor at Lake Ridge, and myself, Keith Lowry, uh, currently serving as an elder at Lake Ridge. Guys, somewhere along the way, homosexuality stopped being discussed in terms of what someone does and started being discussed in terms of who someone is. In other words, the discussion morphed into a question regarding a person's identity. This shift, when it happened, seemed to open a can of worms related to identity because now the identity question is expanded beyond merely the question of sexuality to include the question of race and gender. On the one hand, we're being told that the anatomical characteristic of skin color is the thing that determines a person's identity above any other consideration. But on the other hand, we're being told by transgender advocates that our anatomical characteristics don't matter at all and can be disregarded and that a person's identity is strictly a matter of how they conceive of themselves. The transgender notion of self-defining identity has so affected the whole discussion that there's now a lively debate going on regarding which pronouns we should be allowed to use. What's going on here? Well, I'd, I'd kind of like to get to, bo- get to the bottom of... Um, the expression "open a can of worms." I, I've I've never. Sure. I don't know what that exactly. Why is that a bad thing? Because if you've done it when you're fishing, you've got worms to use. That's a good thing. When does opening a can of worms become a bad thing? Only when it's a matter of identity. Yeah. <laughs> or when okay. you're doing anything other than fishing. Other than fishing, <laughs> don't open that can of worms. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I yeah if you're cooking, don't open a can. Don't of worms. open a can of worms. Yeah, that's right. Um, I know. I actually think um, I, th- I think that there's something about our worldview that's caught up in the way that you framed the question. Um, you said you said this is an issue of human idea I- identity, a question of human identity, and I think that's that's actually kind of gets to the heart of this identity question. Is this is this an individual identity thing? Like, do we have the the right or the authority? to define for ourselves as individuals what we are or who we are, or is this a human identity question? Um, are we, can we speak of identity in terms of universals and, or, or only in particulars? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and I think 
the only commonality I can find between the two sort of really opposing views of what it means to be human, what it means to have an identity, is it all depends on how I feel about that thing. You know, so for someone who really values um, their sexual appetites and says, hey, I really enjoy this part of myself, they can sort of put that into their identity. That can stay there. But for someone who's having just this horrible emotional connection to their body and how they perceive themselves, they can jettison that because of how it makes them feel emotionally. Um, and that to me seems to be sort of a a very central idea. Sort of the experience of who you are seems to sort of determine where that goes. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think um, on the universal side of it, if we can call this a human identity issue, I think I think... God has really set that standard. I mean, this is what you see in Romans 1, but then he also gives people, well, what he wants is us to worship the creator. Instead, what you have is creation worshiping itself. And so when it worships itself, then you start getting into, I'll identify who I, or what I want to be. And um, the results of that aren't very good when you look at what Paul writes in Romans 1. I mean, God chooses to allow people to think that way if they want to, but he gives them over to depraved minds, and it gets really bad from there. Um, their appetites get more and more depraved, and I think that's what you're seeing today. Um, God's allowed them to continue to uh, develop more and more debased thinking, and um, and not only, you know, it's like Paul says, he says, uh, not only do they know that these things deserve death, but they basically applaud or encourage others to join in. And I think that's what we're seeing in our media today. Uh, what used to be just, we'd be shocked to see a commercial that would even hint at a relationship of, say, you know, two men or two women together. Today it's just embraced and promoted, and um, nobody bats an eye hardly. Well, you're right, I think, to highlight that we can't say anything about mankind without understanding first that we're saying something theological. Um, this, this, the whole question of human identity boils down to a question of the nature of reality itself. And the only way we come to a point where we can say the kinds of things as a culture that we're saying about humanity, that humanity can be um, reformed or recreated in whatever image we choose according to the dictates of our appetites, our passions, the political pressures, whatever, uh, is because we've decoupled human nature from a sacred order. That there is some, that humanity itself fits within a broader paradigm of sacred order, that there's a hierarchy of being, a hierarchy of um, existence that begins with God and then runs down through the ranks of all reality, uh, to, to the lowest common denominator, I guess. So how would you differentiate that maybe from just more classical understandings of like human freedom? So just the ability to say, hey, I need to live my life this way because this is the way I'm convicted to live. What might be sort of the difference between that older understanding of human freedom, being able to determine your life, and kind of what you're talking about, this decoupling from created order? I would want to define freedom. So either freedom is unhindered uh, self-expression, which is the way we tend to think of it today, or freedom is the absence of government intrusion upon a genuine pursuit of happiness, which is the way our Constitution tends to frame the idea of freedom. Um, So 
the, the difference being this. We have laws in place today that restrict pedophiles from being able to do whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, and we believe that those laws are good. Very, very few people, although there's a, there's a growing um, adv- advocacy group saying, well, what about the pedophiles? You know, can't, can we add a P to the LGBTQIA plus? Is there a P somewhere in there? Um, we, we've, got, we've, got, we've got to understand that there are still some acts that are wrong in and of themselves, that, that society agrees are wrong in and of themselves. So freedom is not the absence of rules or the absence of um, any external inhibiting forces. It's, it's the right of an individual to pursue their proper ends. The, the, the race right now is to determine as a society, what are those proper ends? Mm. Yeah, what are we for? I mean, ultimately, it's a question we don't ask much anymore because uh, I think the culture's jettisoned the notion that there's a purpose beyond uh, our own gratification. I think, Kyle, to your point about freedom, I mean, freedom is, whatever we think about freedom, it's constrained by reality, right? And so I think it was Mark Twain who used to tell a story. Um, if, you, if, you, um, if you say that uh, a dog's ears are also legs, how many legs does a dog have? Um, well, you may say six, but a dog still only has four legs. It doesn't matter what you call his ears, right? And so there's sort of reality. You're free to say whatever you want, but you don't change the fundamental reality. And so I think people are free to sort of express whatever identity they want to choose, but that doesn't alter what they actually are if, in fact, they were designed and there's a purpose to their existence. So then I guess maybe it's back to your question. There are boundaries as a culture. We say reality set these things. So I think race is one of those. I think age is one of those. We say those are boundaries. You can't color outside those reality lines. Why is it that gender and sexuality now are the lines we really want to push out of, we really want to move away from? Well, I think because in the flesh, there's the definition that man gives himself is I can make any decision I want and yet from a Christian perspective you know if we define freedom within the confines of what scripture teaches us um, you know Jesus says he who sins is a slave to sin and so what they call freedom we would call enslavement and that enslavement when you listen um, for example in the homosexual community uh, just in, in hearing from police officers some of the most heinous crimes that they they uh, are called out on are, are same-sex couples and it's just it's violent the what the end result of um, living in a particular way of uh, or, or lifestyle we don't hear reporting on this kind of stuff uh, but sin whatever it is is going to lead to destruction of some sort and I think you see this played out um, in, in, in that scenario in the homosexual community um, this, you know, parents deciding that they're going to let their children decide who or what they want to be when they get to be 18 years old, you know, or later on, or even younger than that. Um, they think that's freedom, but it's according to scripture, that's enslavement in, in my eyes. So, so then Kyle, your question about why is gender, is, are you asking basically why is gender static and? Well, I'm, I'm asking why, 
if our culture is fine to accept race as a given in reality, like right. we, we're willing to say that that's there, which right. interestingly enough, it's hard to define that that's a given yeah. in reality. But why then do we then go to something like gender, which seems like it would be just as concrete and say, no, 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 that's that's socially constructed. That's not a reality. We can go I'm, past that. I'm going to make a leap because as a pastor, we have to make these kinds of leaps. But I'm going to make a leap and say there's a spiritual aspect to that issue. I, I believe that the, the ruler of this world, our enemy, the adversary, is has eternal animus against first principles, okay? Has, and so what, when we, what we'll find across time is when societies begin to collapse, the enemy has taken hold of hearts and minds, and there is direct assault against first principles. There, so, so for instance, race is static because the, the devil has no wars to win with regard to the race question. Race is not actually a static across time, and it, it, it depends on—human skin color depends entirely upon who happens to be getting married and making babies um, at any given time. Skin color changes across generations throughout human history. We Humans look different based on who's getting married and having kids, but we're always male and female. That's— that is a static reality, and Satan hates it. Well, that was baked into the created order. It's baked into the created binary. order. What we, what color we are, my color. I mean, obviously, I have a race, right? Like I've, I'm, I tend, I'm Caucasian, but, but my family is interracial, and my, so my son happens to be African. If he marries an Asian woman, then their kids won't look like either of them, right? Yeah. They won't look yeah. just like either. So, but they will be either <laughs> X or Y chromosome. Right, they will be. So, so there is an eternal reality in the male-female paradigm that Satan hates because it's because it came from God. Yeah, and my expect and my theory, I agree with you, is that it's it's something first principle, and I think it's first principle specifically because, at least theologically speaking, gender comes with expectation. Yes, that we believe that certain things are true of genders. Um, yes. Certain things are true of male and female. Certain things are true of uh, sexuality. That there's actually rules that God has placed within that relationship. And so anywhere where God says, "Thou shalt not" and "Thou shalt," that's where a sinful culture wants to sort of dig in and say, "No, I want to do what I want to do in that arena in particular." So, so to this point in our discussion, we've established where are we on the map. All right. So on on the map of ideas and time and all those things, we've we've established that we're at a place in time where we believe or we want to believe as a society that we can change the unchangeable. That that we can, we've got the freedom to rewire reality in such a way that male and female are not binary. Um, but they're whatever we want to make ourselves to be. But so I, the question is, how did we get here? Yeah, I, so that's a great question because um, I think it 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 points to a larger tension and struggle over the question of authority mm-hmm. and and um, whether we are subject to the created order. Uh, willingly or unwillingly, whether we're subject to the created order or whether, in fact, we're self-defining as human beings. And um, along the way, uh, and, and really in some ways starting really early, probably as soon as the Tower of Babel, uh, if not before, people started thinking in terms of defining themselves, certainly setting themselves up as the thing to be adored, which is really 
what was going on at the Tower of Babel, they said, let's just make this a monument to ourselves, you know. Um, and so the question, I think, whether it's the question of race uh, and people sort of saying race is defining, or whether it's the question of your sexual proclivities or your view of your own body or whatever those questions are that relate to identity, I think they all boil ultimately down to who gets to say and on what basis is that is that assertion made and with what authority? Uh, because I honestly, I don't think um, we evolved to this place as a society where um, you made the statement earlier, Ben, you know, ultimately it's a theological question. And I think that's exactly right. But even within Christian circles today, there's this tension between whether we're going to accept the biblical text position on things or whether we're going to understand questions of identity in the context of sociological yeah. uh, categories. Where are we, are we, and this is what, once again, kind of a long way around the the barn to get back to the question of authority. How, how do we decide uh, what identity is? You know, to Ben's question, is it just we get to determine it, or is there some overarching reality that it's inescapable that no matter what we say, you know, something else defines our identity? There's a, there's a question behind the question, and it's where did we come from? Yeah. And, th- you know, Christians for since the 50s, or and before that even, but, um, you know, when, when were the Scopes trials? When did that take place? I'm, I, don't, I don't know a year for that. 50s, I Jeremy, believe. you know? 30s, 40s, 50s? I'm going to use my Google box while y'all are talking. 20th century. So I think we can, we yeah. can boil it down yeah. to the 20th, yeah, the 20th century. century. I, so, so this, but the idea is this. This, this understanding of um, reality sort of coming ex nihilo, is is shared between Christians and and evolutionists. The evolutionists are going to say that all of material reality sort of bursts forth ex nihilo, or at least from some pre-existing cosmic ooze and the sun and you know who knows what else. Christians are going to say no. It was actually all of reality, material reality, was imbued with purpose because it came from a loving, personal God who was Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are diametrically opposed worldviews. One presupposes that we were created with a purpose, and that that purpose transcends us. The other one says, we are whatever we want to be, because there is no underlying purpose for what we do or what we are. I mean, we would never say that about our eyeballs. We know exactly what the purpose of our eyeballs is, right? But we seem to be confused about what the purpose of our genitals happens to be as a society, you know? Um, And so I think that there's this, you know, Christians have slowly... But I think more and more Christians are, are comfortable with the evolutionary language of our origins. There's kind of a cozying up to that among, I think, Christian scientists. It gets to this question of what ultimately has authority here. Right. It's a theological question. And I don't think that—I think the extent to which we lose ground on the question of our origins, where did we come from, we lose ground on the question of who gets to say what we are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that bleeds into other disciplines. I mean, I, I th- like the psychological, so not just the physiological, but the psychological experience of ourselves. We've all sort of adopted, I, I'm guilty of this in a lot of situations, of really leaning into a therapeutic view of a human person, really believing yeah. that if I can make them feel, feel good about themselves or if they can experience their life well, then I've done something special. 
<laughs> when in reality, there are plenty of times I've been living in sin, and I felt really good about it. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. but that's because I'm I'm giving into this perception of humanity, which is if it's something that feels good to me, if my subjective experience of this activity is good, then that must be okay. It's the old, um, if it feels good, how could it be bad? Well, I mean, Carl Truman talks about this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he says that in modern world, the world in which we live in today, uh, psychological satisfaction is the measure of every good thing uh, and, and people's assessment. In fact, he argues that, you know, he, he sort of suggests that people are making a mistake when they sort of mock and make fun of these college kids by calling them snowflakes who talk about the desire for safe spaces and, um, you know, they, they, they interpret language as violence, you know. And he, he, he's not saying that what they're saying is true, but he says we should take them seriously because they are really wandering through life with the belief that everybody owes them some degree of psychological satisfaction. Everybody needs to wander through life not interrupting or upsetting their good feels, you know. And, um, and so um, y- you may think, well, that sounds weird, um, or you may think, well, that's just the world's view. But honestly, you, you get this even among Christians, that it's somehow unloving to say anything that's contrary to what a person wants to believe. And this has been going on for a long time. I, I mean, it was probably in the early 80s. I sat and I, I wasn't involved with youth very much in the 80s. Uh, I had, you know, young kids at home. and uh, But I sat down with the high school kids at our church. And the vast majority of the kids in that class expressed a belief that it would be wrong to talk to their Hindu friend about their, uh, the gospel if their Hindu friend was fully convinced in his own faith. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, and so that has, I think, expanded to the view. I heard a sermon from kind of a celebrity preacher recently in which he argued that uh, we should not um, that we should we should not question anyone's lived experience. Mm-hmm. So this gets back to uh, who's the ultimate interpretational lens for understanding what we go through in the world? Yeah, I think this is why you know when Jesus said, "Look." The world hates you. Remember, it hated me first. There's a reason for that. Yeah. So when you start throwing down authoritative statements, and, yeah. and we believe that the Word of God is the final say, it's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. Again, not because we're trying to be offensive, but truth grates against the flesh and fleshly desires. You know, I, I've sat with uh, people here in my office at church struggling over a, f- a family member who was in a same-sex relationship. This has been several years back. And what I noticed was, um, I know the stand they they had before this this occurrence came uh, occurred within the family. That here's what the Word of God says, and here's what we believe. And yet, when it hits home, and you've got a family member in it, they had a real struggle. Uh, the comment was made about the relative and that that relative's partner. They don't flaunt it. They they are sincere. They love each other. And all of a sudden, what I was seeing unfold was, is it so bad? 
you know, is it really wrong if you just have two committed people like that? And all of a sudden, the stance that we took based on what God's Word says is now being, we're, we're entertaining the thought of, but maybe this isn't all that wrong to start after all, you know? And so you got you got to make a decision. Do you believe what the Word of God says, or are you going to start compromising when it hits closer to home? And, um, I mean, I hurt for them, and I, I, I felt the, I mean, they were, eyes were filled with with tears wrestling with this and i i I heard i i felt the weight of the situation but this question of who gets to be the authority we 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 have to rest in what god's word says and not allow ourselves to to compromise um even when it is affecting those within our own families and I don't have all the answers of how to navigate that in particular settings. I know that's something families wrestle with whenever they, they're confronted with it. How do we love them and yet at the same time stand firm with what God's Word teaches us to do and how to respond to that with love and grace? But what does that look like, you know, without coming across as endorsing or enabling? And so it kind of goes back yeah. to the question of what's our role in society as Christians? Are we are we um, here to pr- protect people from negative experiences? Is that why Jesus left us here? Because at the end of the day, we actually believe Jesus exists. We believe he's a king, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he could very he could jolly well, if he pleases, just take us home. Like as soon as we as soon as we become one of his, he could yank us out of the world. So why are we here? Are we here to protect people from negative experiences first and foremost, or? Are we here to bear witness to the truth? Are we are we sort of the continued presence of Jesus in the world to that end? What do you mean by protect from negative experience? A negative experience, to protect someone from negative experience would be to, I think in this case, preserve the illusion that they'd like to per- perpetuate. About themselves. And about their own themselves identity. and their own identity. Um, and so I think Jesus wants us to bear witness to the truth, but it's very, very hard because no one wants to be a meanie. No one wants, and so this gets kind of gets boils down to this truth about, or this idea about pronouns. What pronouns should we use and shouldn't we use? You're going to have a group of Christians who say, use the pronoun that they want to be used. What's the harm? And 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 you're going to have another group of Christians say, I don't want to, I don't want to affirm a lie. So, yeah, and it gets it gets into this sticky presupposition we have as a culture, which is that love always has to be affirmation. Love always has to be the acceptance of someone's activities, their attitudes, their actions, you know, whatever. And um, the Bible seems to display God's love to us as sort of a constant cycle of rebuke and transformation and repentance. And so I think we need to get away from this conception that love and truth are constantly butting heads all the time, that they're not enemies, that the truth and love uh, we actually believe that the truth sets people free. We actually believe that to live in the truth is to move in the direction of the way God created the universe. And yeah. so it's actually to their benefit that we give them the truth because we love them and yeah. in love and with love. Paul says um, love rejoices in the truth. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that comes from a fear that I have to choose between being truthful in this moment and being a meanie (laughs) or showing love, but sort of giving up some of the convictions that I have. And I don't think we have to choose, but I think to your point, Van, Mm -hmm. that is such 
that's going to cost something. That kind of truthful loving is going to cost something. Well, it's socially awkward, first of all. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I think we're going to have to, increasingly this is true. I think, you know, it, there was a time in history and there's, there's a, you know, there's cyclical nature to history, but there, there are times in history where in any given societal context, Christians are more or less in step with what's happening in the culture. Or maybe we should say the culture is more or less in step with Christianity, right? And in those times where the culture's more in step with Christianity, the um, the necessity of social awkwardness declines. But in environments like, I would argue, the environment we're living in now, where the culture is largely out of step, increasingly adversarial toward Christianity, then Christians, I think, are going to have to make more choices about uh, whether they view their role as wandering through life Passing, about, passing out participation trophies to everybody they encounter or and just to make everybody feel good or whether, uh, you know, in their relationships they, they have an obligation to truth even at the cost of social discomfort. Yeah. yeah. So the first time I, I remember I was uh, living in an apartment with some buddies of mine and I was fresh out of high school and I was, I think I was making dinner at my apartment and one of my roommates came in and he said, all right, I need y'all to let y'all know one of my friends is coming over and they'll be here in about 10 minutes. Just wanted to let you know that they identify as genderqueer. And this is the first time I had heard any of this, uh, especially at a personal level. And my immediate response was, so what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, what is what is the expectation when this person do? comes into my that. house? Yeah. yeah. I, and so because the, my, my Christian reflex was hospitality was to provide an environment in which this person would feel welcome where we are and it's my friend's friend like what am i supposed to do i think now i I would think a little differently about how that conversation went because in the moment i wasn't prepared and i think a lot of people feel that way they don't feel prepared for those kind of socially awkward moments and so i think it's sort of funny because I mean, just the the story you just shared makes total sense. We could all kind of imagine a universe in which we are in that exact scenario. Yeah. Um, and we've all been there before. But the, can you imagine a similar scenario? You're at a party and one of your friends walks in and they say, I just want everyone here to know one of my friends is on their way to this party and they'll be here in about 10 minutes. And what I need you to know is they identify as Napoleon Bonaparte. You, you, I mean, how would you respond to that either? Awkward. Yeah, you kind of go, well, <laughs> I would, I mean, if it was that, I'd be like, why'd you invite him for it? You know, um, you know but, but, but with, the, with the transgender issue, you do want to be, because there is, because there is a consensus among wider culture that this is something acceptable. We as Christians who have another worldview, who operate for, within a sacred order, we, we sort of feel the pinch of how am I supposed to approach this question. I don't mind telling someone who believes in Napoleon Bonaparte that uh, I'm not going to go with you down that rabbit hole, you know, but yeah. but we feel wrong or mean for, for doing that with someone else. And this whole idea of consensus is important. We had laws in place for a long time throughout Western civilization that forbade homosexual acts. Um, and suddenly, and even our, the American uh, Psychiatric Association until I think it was the 1970s, 1973 or 74. There's a, there's a, I don't remember which, but um, they they had 
homosexuality as one of the um, sexual deviances, or or um, what's the word? What's the oh for goodness sakes malady? It's a malady. It was listed as a malady, and then suddenly changed in the 1970s, not because the science changed or the studies had changed, but because of political pressure to change it. Um, and so I, I think this is what we're running into. We're running into as Christians the the felt pressure to be part of the consensus, a rationalization about bad behavior is always necessary when people are engaging in bad behavior. We have to rationalize. But the only way we can do it as a culture and make it stick is if we all agree together with the rationalization. We need consensus, which is why it's really not anyone can believe sort of what they want to about these issues. It's you will be made to believe what we believe about these issues if you want to have a seat at the party, a, a, a spot at the table. Um, so we're being pressured to, to concede. Yeah, you, you can be this, which is why, for instance, not just on the pronoun use, but I want to throw this out there. There's this sort of debate among Christians, even among Christians who agree that homosexual is, homosexuality is wrong, whether the term gay Christian uh, is valid. Whether someone can refer to themselves not as a practicing gay Christian necessarily, because even among those who agree that homosexuality is wrong, there are repentant uh, former same-sex attraction activists who would re still refer to themselves as gay Christians. They've they've kept the identity marker with them in 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 their repentance. What do y'all think about that? So Romans chapter six says uh, that we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, and so I would say any time that you attach something dead as the defining mark of your <laughs> Christianity is probably not a good place to be. Well, and he also says in that chapter, what benefit did you gain from those things you're now ashamed of? Why, why yeah. would you even attach a label like that yeah. to? And I, I think it you know. leans into that authenticity thing that our culture is really like. We really think the thing Christians should be is the authentic more than anything else. And so I think it's coming from a place for a lot of people where they're trying to acknowledge this is something I struggle with, but we don't expect that from anyone's struggles. Like, we don't say, like, well, I, I, I'm a thieving Christian. You know, like, I'm a Christian who's really struggled with, you know, pornography or whatever. I'm a porn-using Christian. Yeah. and Well, stop that, I and, would say. And we say, okay, we know that that's a struggle that you've had, but that doesn't define you. Right. That's not and who you I are. wonder if—, if keeping that label is in some way an attempt to still have the world like you. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to be in that crowd, but I don't want you guys to hate me because I've, I'm following Jesus. So I'm going to call myself a gay Christian. Maybe that's a way of, of trying to avoid persecution. Yes. Uh, from uh, the group you once belonged to. Rosaria so, Champagne Butterfield. Yeah, I was just going to bring okay, her you, up. Rosaria you, you Butterfield. Um, she, you know, she's a former lesbian. She's married, I think, to a Presbyterian minister uh, now and has written some really interesting things about, I mean, she was not just a lesbian. She was a deep, she was a Syracuse professor, I think, in English lit, and she was deeply involved in sort of the intellectual development of the whole notion of queer theory. Uh, and she's written a couple of books about her life and her experience, but one of them uh, that I really recommend if you get a chance to read it is called Openness Unhindered. If you haven't read her book, it's really, really a fascinating book. But she she talks about, I don't know if it's in this book 
or in a, another video that I saw her speak in, but she talks about the dangers of making your temptations your identity. And uh, I think this is, you know, responsive to the question about whether, uh, and we kind of hinted at this, whether, you know, sort of leading your Christian identity with your sexual uh, temptations is in anybody's best interest, you know. Um, you know, no one says, you know, I'm a fornicating, tempted Christian, you know. Uh, but um, so leading with your temptations and sort of making that part of your spiritual identity is a very dangerous thing to do. You are not what you want, right? is the point that and, she makes. And I think this, is, this ultimately boils down to, to almost the entire identity discussion across yeah. every facet is, is our identity whatever we want it to be, or is it something that is given to us from someone else? Well, and I would go yes. so far as to say yes. that you really shouldn't put a modifier in front of Christian in general. Like, you shouldn't be an American Christian or a black or white Christian or a—you should be a Christian because mm-hmm. that is the foundational— It transcends, but yeah. when we attach modifiers to the term, we've modified the term. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and so it's not to say that you are not, you know, American or you are not, you know, any of these other things, but to— say Christian is the foundation. Christian is the transcendent reality. Everything else is something is something else that gonna, is of a lower yeah. order of importance. Yeah, it's like coloring your Christianity with your pet sin. Yeah. You know, like I want to color my Christianity by by my chief flaw. Um, it's not it's not the way that should work. Um, she, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield goes on to say, and by the way, anyone with a name as spectacular as Rosaria Champagne Butterfield should just be trusted from the outset, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but she goes on to say that even Christians need to drop the heterosexual tag, that that this whole, the, the, the invention, the, she calls it the neologism, the new wording of hetero versus homosexual has framed reality for us. We have terms that now frame the nature of reality. They frame the discussion in such a way that there are two competing, not even competing, but two available options for existence as humans. One is you like people who are just like you. The other one is you like the opposite sex, right? But that's not actually the truth. Those are new words that didn't exist until something like the mid to late 19th century, I think it was. So it's interesting. We've we've kind of batted around this idea that this struggle with identity is somewhat of a new phenomenon. So Google has this really interesting tool that they have for Google Books where you can mm-hmm. go online and you can look up in all the books that are on Google Books when and how often and at what times particular words are used. Um, so I went on and I tried to look up identity, my identity, all these things. Fascinatingly enough, uh, if you look up identity, it really kicks up in the 1960s. And there's some stuff like in the 1500s, 1600s. Sexual revolution really did a number. Yeah, that's probably like, you know, all the guys trying to identify like plants and animals and stuff. (laughs) And then if you type in my identity or I identify as, my identity also kicks up in the 1960s right at the sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. And I identify as on Google Books, you know how many times it pinged? Once. (laughs) And right here within the last couple of years. Wow. It's a remarkably new conversation we're having. Interestingly enough, I did the same search recently for the word reprove 
Turns out, since about the 1800s, we haven't been using the word reprove very often, just so you guys know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it's absolutely the case. So there's an interesting—I'm going to read—I'm going to quote from a book. It's actually—I'm it's actually I'm quoting from the Supreme Court majority opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This was foundational um, to the establishment of a lot of the ideas we've been talking about today. But this is from a book by a guy named Robert Riley— and it's a book about how uh, rationalizing homosexual behavior is changing everything in the United States. And this is the quote that he gives from this Planned Parenthood versus Casey case. This is from the majority opinion. And this is written, by the way, into, our, into the fabric of uh, American reality now from the highest courts in the land. These matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy— are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. Listen, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. What a thing to say. Of course, it's a false... Mm-hmm. Framing not just uh, in regard to that, but whether the only alternative to the definition of those things is the state of self-defining is the state. There, there's. I think the Christian, and, and this maybe is a good time to turn our attention to not just what we're grappling with, but what's the Christian point of view. So, the the Supreme Court thinks that either you're self-defining or the state gets to define. Who you, what your ident- a person's identity and source of meaning is. But they're not the only players on the field, you know. Um, so, so from a Christian point of view, uh, maybe we should spend a little bit of time kind of exploring what's the Christian view of human identity? Yeah. What's the, the biblical view of human identity, and, and how does that contrast explicitly with, say, uh, sexual identity— uh, and racial identity. And first and foremost, the Christian view of, and we've, we've made this point already, we'll make it again because we need to establish this at the outset. The Christian view of humanity is that its purpose is derived from its creator, that there is a creating, loving God who created us out of love um, and imbued us with purpose. And we actually get the heart of that narrative in the first few chapters of the first book of the Bible called Genesis. Um, in, a, in a recent Faith and Culture Quick Take video, we, uh, we, we identified the book of Genesis as the skeleton key to reality, that a person's ability to understand the world around them and to understand his or herself is really conditional upon their understanding of Genesis— what God says, what God reveals in His Word about where we came from and what we're for. And it's wrapped up in the idea of being made, not simply being made, but being made in the image of God. That we're created unique from all other creatures in the sense that we are to reflect and relate back to God in a very unique way. That we are representing Him. That wherever we go, we don't get to represent. I don't represent the like United States of Kyle when I'm walking around the world. Be cool though. That I mean, would be, that's kind of. <laughs> we'd have a cool flag and stuff. Yeah. It'd be fun. Yeah. Um. But 
Really small military, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to unpack that metaphor. (laughs) But we... um, but we are meant to represent the the God who made us and yes. his character, his commands, and his purpose for the world. And when we're not doing that, we're actually being contrary to use the language who we are. Mm-hmm. We are not being who we are when we do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, key to the key to the narrative of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is this idea that we're made in God's image. So... There's a lot of discussion about what being made in God's image means, and theologians have have batted that around for a couple millennia now, um, or, or if not longer, going back into its Jewish origins. Um, but to understand Jewish or, or to understand the the identity of humanity as being made in God's image, I think first and foremost it means that we don't get to define ourselves. We are a reflection of the one who made us. We're derivative. We're derivative <clears throat> of the one who made us. I think it. I think it says more than that. Being made in God's image means more than that, but it means at least that. So I was just kind of by happenstance, and not even as part of preparation for this conversation, I was reading through Colossians recently, and it's interesting. In chapter three of Colossians, um, there there's an interesting sort of. Um, word that Paul, the the writer of Colossians, is offering uh, to the church in Colossae about how Christians think about questions of identity, particularly when they have translated their existence, or where God has transformed their existence from their old life into their new life in Christ. He says, when that happens, there's a bunch of stuff you put off, right? You put off things like obscene talk and anger and wrath and malice and slander. And so when you come into Christ, you put all these things away. But then he says something else happens. Um, you, you put on a new self, he says, which is being renewed, listen to this, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the way we think about things is being transformed to be more consistent with God's image for us. And listen to what it says. Here's what characterizes that. Okay. Here he says, there is no Greek or Jew, no racial distinctions. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. We don't take into account people's religious history in once we come to Christ, right? No um, barbarian or, or Scythian. We don't take into account their social standing. No slave or free. We don't take into account their economic standing. So this is interesting because not only does God define what it constitute, what it means to be in his image, but there's something about coming to Christ in which he's tr- he wants to transform our thinking so that we no longer view people according to these other categories. That we're being told are Central. essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're being told right now, even by some Christians, yeah. That race is the defining characteristic of a person's life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that is a total change in our culture that's taken place <clears throat> over the last 50 or 60 years. I was thinking about mm. doing this today, and um, and I was just kind of thinking back um, through, you know, my own life experience in terms of 
what I've seen in terms of you've seen a lot. You're pretty old. Yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm doddering. Um, uh, at any rate, um, I was reminded of this movie. There was this movie that took place, and it was really reflective of the mindset about race in the '60s. And it's a movie oh, a lot of people have seen. It. It's called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a Spencer Tracy, uh, Catherine Hepburn movie stars also Sidney Portier. And the whole plot of the movie is that uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn are husband and wife, and their white daughter comes home from a trip to Hawaii announcing that she's marrying a black guy. And it happens to be Sidney Portier. And in a weird sort of contrived plot device, uh, they they want their parents' blessing, but they've only got about 12 hours to get it because they're going to get on a plane and go off and get married. Um, and so there's, so the, the guy's parents, a, a black couple is invited to dinner, and then the white family is hosting the dinner, and the big subject under discussion is, is anyone gonna give this young couple their blessing to get married? And it's a huge conflict, but the entire thing was really an open discussion about racial attitudes during that time in 1967. And this, by the way, is one year before Martin Luther King was killed. It's at the height of the civil rights movement in America. Mm -hmm. And there's this memorable scene um, uh, in that in that movie. And I'm, I, I kind of I wrote this down before we came because I, if it became relevant, I want to share it. Um, where there's this memorable scene in this movie where Sidney Poitier is off in a private room talking to his dad and uh, about this girl he's going to marry. And his dad is dead set against it. His black father just thinks he should not be doing this. He's just going to be making trouble for himself, and he should not be doing this. And um, and Sidney Poitier says to Roy Glenn, who is the actor that kind of a famous character actor that was playing his dad in this movie, he makes this comment in the midst of their conflict. He says, you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. And I think that, that point of view, we're living through a time where that's, utterly reversed mm -hmm. and even in certain christian circles the argument is being made don't think about people just in their humanity yes think about them <clears throat> primarily in terms of their racial characteristics yeah and 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 you know gender be darned yeah right so like it, it's the exact opposite of what sydney portier expresses there it's right you think of yourself as a colored man i think of myself as a man well right. sydney portier is an idiot in twenty in in twenty twenty one, right, and his dad's the one who's got it all together, right, right, in in twenty twenty one. So you you talk about the Christian view of identity, and we can't talk about the Christian view of identity without getting at, at the heart of this issue. We because we believe we're created, we believe that we were created with purpose. So we are essentially teleological. The word is telos. We believe that God built. There are inbuilt purposes and ends toward which He created. Humans. Yeah, we're and, here for a reason. And that, and that, and we we go further than that as Christians. We believe that males and females have inbuilt purposes, and you can actually look at a male and a female and sort of understand some of their inbuilt purposes by the way that they are. Form follows right? function. Yeah, form yeah. follows function. There, there, there's some of that in there. However, so so this is important. I happen to be Scotch Irish, and then I guess maybe we've got who knows what else is floating around in my DNA. <laughs> um, kind of mongrel. I'm kind of a mongrel, right? I'm kind of a mongrel human. A mutt. Yeah, <clears throat> but I've so I've got some Scotch Irish. I'm mostly Scotch Irish. Um, that is not foundational, essential, or a defining characteristic of my purpose, but my manhood is. 
my gender is um, teleological. My color is not. My color tells me nothing about my purpose or God's design for me, his will for me within the world today. It tells me nothing. It's, it's almost accidental. It's like whoever happened to get married over the years to eventually produce me, that's the way I am. But I am male. And, and, and that's the thing that defines my purpose in the world, aside from being a Christian, I just mean from a, from a sort of baseline level. Being male is the aspect of my identity that, that, that informs my understanding of who I am and what I should be about in the world. Um, not my color. And so I wonder, you know, we're getting to this point where we're sort of saying there has to be a rebuttal, there has to be a Christian response to you can't just remake all this reality in the way that you want. We've been created in a specific way. A lot of these things have ends. They have purposes. Um, I'm thinking about you know some of the people Van was bringing up, these families that I'm talking to um, in my ministry, among my friend groups, where they've got close friends who are in these, these, these groups of people who have bought into this ideology. I'm thinking of uh, teens who are asking me, you know, should I use the pronouns of the person that I'm that I'm hanging out yeah. with? This this friend of mine. Um, yeah. What's what, what are we going to what are we going to tell those the, yeah. those people? Yeah. This Should is... they use the pronoun of the person that is asking them to do so? Van, you're nodding yes. <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think he was just acknowledging how intelligent acknowledging I am. Okay. Across the I misinterpreted room. that. Sorry, Van. I was nodding. I understand what he's saying. He was so. nodding off. Yeah. He was nodding off. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was at the fair last Monday night and helping with the evangelism booth and just had an opportunity to talk to people from every, it seemed, every ethnic background you could imagine. And I just absolutely loved it because one of the things I was just reminded of over and over is that, you know, when we ask what's our response and, and how do we deal with the issue that's in front of us today, it's that it's it's engaging people one on one and presenting yeah. the love of Christ and and so I was just in awe of how I, I watched I believe the Spirit just grabbed the attention of those that I had a chance to share with, um, and I wasn't looking at the color of skin they weren't looking at the color of my skin. Um, I think God in his grace just opened a lot of ears, and they were just able to hear the truth of what he had to say about all of us. And um, it was just a, some sweet moments mm. the other night. And, um, you know, it was just a reminder that this, this is the call. This is what Jesus yeah. called us to do. This is how you're going to engage people. I think organizations and groups within our society, they're waiting for some inflammatory comment to yeah. be made so that it can, we can just be at war. But the one-on-one -on -one engagement and loving people uh, is you yeah. There's the you chip away one one-on-one. -on -one. There's the placard and um, and uh, like uh, well, there's the crowd, the picket lines, the people who want to sort of go and lob theological hand grenades into crowded rooms and and cause a stir. And I don't think that's what God has in in view for Christians. I don't think that's the view. I think Van, you're right that there's a there's a one-on-one -on -one approach that's that's preferable at all, where, where, wherever possible. 
I'm, I'm thinking also, though, of the ones who are in really compromising positions like school teachers yeah. who's, or, 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 you know, professionals who are being told that at a professional level you have to use the preferred pronoun. And so now all of a sudden they don't believe the lie that they're being told to perpetuate, but they have a choice to either capitulate to those demands or resist and face very real consequences. And they're not doing that in a mean-spirited way. They could do it in a very loving one-on-one way, oh, you saw and it could still Virginia. cost them. Yeah, right. you saw that with a, a teacher in Virginia, I believe it was, and just said, look, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm not going to call the student by some pronoun that they want me to call them. And, um, the time has come yeah. when I think Christians are going to face real consequences for standing for the truth. And, and I think that there are some career choices, some... Um, some endeavors that are more at risk of that than others. Uh, as a pastor, I don't currently today face a whole lot of pressure to say anything other than what the Bible tells me to, uh, at least not from my own constituents. But anyone who works in the secular marketplace is yeah. going to face a lot of pressure. I mean, this this is going on right now. Uh, you know, people, Christian believers who work in especially large uh, organizations that are sort of on the on the identity rights bandwagon uh, in one way or another are being encouraged down the path of sort of being open to saying things they don't believe, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge, kind of to your point earlier, Ben, about, you know, I I think there's a temptation to think in terms of either acquiescence or um, sort of aggressive... um, confrontational approaches, but there's there's a real continuum between those approaches, and I think at the end of the day, what we have to remember is it, the truth is compassionate. Hmm. Um, the truth itself is compassionate. Itself is compassionate. Anything less than the truth is uncompassionate. Right. Now, now don't gum it up and be a, a mean spirit with the truth, because <laughs> the truth itself is already compassionate. Right, right. right. And and so you, you, you don't have to be a, you know, gratuitously offensive, right. but I think it is going to be the case where Christians need to uh, make some hard choices about right. whether or not they're going to live within the truth. That's right, and and live out the truth and be open and honest uh, about what's real with people who would really prefer that they just parrot uh, their preferred uh, way of communicating. And I think that's a challenge, but I think. It's going to be a challenge for Christians. There's going to be a price to pay. I think some Christians are going to, people will go after them, I mean, and try to keep them from uh, being able to make a living. Uh, Jack Phillips, you know, at Masterpiece Cake Shop in, mm-hmm. in Colorado is still embroiled in lawsuits yes. because someone wants him Will be forever because he's an icon of resistance. You know, the lady become that. in the Pacific Northwest with the flower shop who mm-hmm. was just, mm-hmm. you know, basically run out of business by the Supreme Court because... She won't affirm, yeah. you know, uh, people's view of themselves. So I, I happened to come across this quote just a moment ago as I was uh, looking through Robert Riley's book. I'm not, I'm not actually walking around all day with Igor Stravinsky quotes in my brain, but Igor Stravinsky um, once said that the old original sin was one of knowledge. The new original sin is one of non-acknowledgement. And yeah. this, this comes to the issue of whether we're going to tell the truth. The, the, the most dangerous thing that you can do is to not acknowledge someone's delusion. 
And I think in, in terms of the cost to you within the culture. And as Christians, we need to proactively give each other permission to suffer with this, to suffer with each other. So I think what that's going to require, because to y'all's point, I'm a pastor. As far as I know, my job is not going to be on the line for a lot of these questions. But a lot of people's livelihoods, a lot of people's choices in terms of their their jobs is going to depend on how they land on this issue. I think we need to proactively give each other permission to suffer. So, for instance, that might mean a spouse going to a spouse and saying, I give you permission to say what you believe is the truth and come what may from that choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's, that's a liberating thing to give someone you love to say, I'm not going to hold you to a standard that's going to make you deny what you believe to be right. Yeah. I love your integrity more than I love your income. Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think as parents too, um, I think parents, Christian parents in particular, need to be a lot more strategic in their thinking about how they guide their children from an educational or career standpoint too. Because I think there are definitely career paths in which this sort of compromise is gonna be more prevalent than other career paths. And so, I mean, maybe it's a discussion for another podcast, but I think as parents, um, there needs to be much less go with the flow and just accept what the culture's saying about the path to having a career uh, then historically we've been we've you know we've done as Christians and as and within churches. I think we need to be thinking about very alternative routes for our kids uh, toward independence, economic independence. And I think for a lot of parents too, there's sort of this panic mode, especially when it comes to the transgender issue, because in that community the reality is there's a a, a massive rate of of um, of suicide of yeah. of of loss of life. Um, and I think the the narrative that's being given is, well, if we just accept them, if we just say these things to them, we can save their life. And I think that's not borne out by the data. Um, no, it isn't. The right. most the most permissive countries we have are not seeing any dips in those no. um, in those statistics. And I think what that points to is that exactly what you said that the truth is actually compassionate. That the best way to help someone in that dire, dire, desperate situation is to give them the truth as lovingly as possible and to hope that that will bring them out yeah, of... It's, <clears throat> so this whole question of... And this is probably the last thing I'm going to say on this. Um, and then I'd like to get some closing thoughts from each of you guys. But there's this, there's a biblical truth, and it's that the wages of sin is death. That's not God being a meanie, okay? That's just... That's just the, it's, it's, it's to say this... The best possible course of action for you would be to conform your perceptions to reality. Because the extent to which your perceptions are skewed by a lie, you run the risk of dying for that. Like, the, the, the laws of nature and reality orient themselves, want to orient themselves toward the truth. And if we deliberately propound a lie, we put people's lives at risk. Yeah. That's the bottom line. You know, I read a while back Eskimos, one of the ways they kill, um, I guess, wolves out where they're living is they'll put a, a sword of sorts in the snow and they'll put some attractant on, on there to get the there's the wolf smelling it and they'll come out there and they'll start licking that blade. Well, pretty soon that blade's cutting their tongue, they're, but their appetite for the blood, their own blood, don't even realize it. They're just they're killing themselves. And so they have this appetite that's going to eventually destroy them, and and they they 
they die off. And I think that's what we see with the sin that people want to call freedom or free choice. It, it, It kills you. You think you want it, but that's not the way God designed this. So when we talk about order and what God, the purpose God had uh, and, and the way he designed us and the boundaries he set for us, good boundaries, I like to call it, because we're not missing out on something. That's what the world wants to tell you. You're, um, that's not freedom, but it really is um, because it's sparing us from things that destroy us. And so um, I think our job is helping or, or making ourselves available so the Spirit can open their eyes to help them see the, the truth of that and, uh, and turn to what really brings life. Well, thanks, guys. Another good discussion. Look forward to gathering again soon. The world tells us that it's up to the individual to decide who they are and what they want to be in regard to their sexuality and purpose. People demand to live out their own truth today, but that's a disastrous path to take. The last verse from the book of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. We need a standard of truth that applies to all people in all times. And thankfully, we've been given that from our King, Jesus. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can contact us by email with your questions and comments at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.